All right, Krista, we have the catechism for today. Uh, as y'all know, we're making our way through the New City Catechism. Um, I believe we still have some left on the table out in the foyer, uh, but uh, uh, we recommend everyone going through this as a family. It's great for the kids to, to be able to, to do just to get some categories, and we're doing it together as a church. So I'll read the question, uh, and then we'll recite together the answer. So what is sin? Sin is the rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you now as sinners. We are what's wrong with the world that you created. Uh, our fathers, uh, Adam and Eve, turned against you, and we have repeated their sin continually, daily, in our own lives. And so would you forgive us for our sins? And thank you for sending your son to undo the mess that we've made and to recreate the world to give us a new creation where we will be with our God, reconciled and restored uh, in perfect unity uh, because our sins have been removed uh, and reconciliation has been has taken place through the work of your son. So thank you for that and help us to uh, be mindful of that uh, as we come before you to sing your praises as we interact with one another. May we never forget that we are sinners in need of grace. May arrogance uh, and pride be far from us, and may that come out in humility in how we interact um, with one another. And so, Lord, I pray your blessing uh, this Sunday morning as we gather again to, to worship you, to, to get underneath your word, to see what you have said to us. And so would you bless the, the, the hearing and the preaching of your word? Uh, would you stir in our hearts and give us affection for Jesus? And may we see his affection for us. And so I pray that you, not only would you bless Redeemer Church this morning, but that you would bless all the churches throughout Starkville who are gathered this morning uh, to give you the praise that is worthy of your name. And praying for the churches, Lord, I want to thank you for the kindness and generosity of Sharon Baptist Church in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. They have been kind to us and, uh, as we've been renters, and they've been owners, and they were kind to us and the selling of this property to us. Thank you for the good gift you've given us. Uh, help us to honor you in this place that is now under our ownership. May you be honored uh, in this place by your people with gladness and joy, singing praises to you. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading today will be from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. Okay, Mark 10, 17 through 31. This is the word of God. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit an eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, 
Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And he said to him, Then who can say who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Jesus began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right. <clears throat> Thanks, Shonika. Well, okay, this... Uh this passage is fairly well known uh, with the rich man uh, who couldn't walk away from his wealth. Uh, and Jesus is provoked into saying the famous line, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So in this passage, we have two contrasting characters. We have the rich man and we have Peter. The, the rich man was, was not willing to leave it all to follow Jesus. And Peter actually did leave everything to follow Jesus. And, and this is one of those passages where we don't have to work real hard to figure out what's the point of it, what's Jesus getting at, because he says it explicitly in verse 31. It says, many who are first will be last, and the last first. But what will require some work is, is what does that mean? What does this story mean in light of what Jesus said? What, is it, what did it mean for them, and what does it mean for us? So in regards to the rich man, Jesus says, it's difficult for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And then with Peter, he challenges his idea of sacrifice. So today let's consider the rich man and Peter. So first, the rich man. So in the passage, uh, the wealthy man asks Jesus, and he calls him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and rather than asking the rich man to say the sinner's prayer, Jesus really messed up on that one, right? He had a great opportunity. He said, repeat after me with every eye closed. He didn't do that. Um, but instead, he challenged his idea of goodness, and he pointed him to the law of Moses. Now, if we didn't know this was Jesus, and we just kind of got this random transcript and weren't familiar with this story, we might give Jesus a D minus in evangelism, because he really missed a good opportunity right here because we all know how to share the gospel right we have those little what is the gospel booklets god man christ response and and it doesn't seem like jesus went through that right here and, and instead it seems like he almost got elusively philosophical he said why do you call me good and then he followed it up with a dose of legalism he pointed him back to the law of moses but obviously jesus knows what he's doing so why did he do this well, first, he makes the point that no one is good but God alone. That implies that this rich man is not good. 
And then to, to make that more clear, he points them to the law of Moses. And the whole idea of, of the law, we've gone through this before, is to show us our, 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 our sin and our need for a Savior. So this is what Jesus is doing here. But after considering the law of Moses, the man's not humbled by it, but he thinks, check, I've done that. I'm, I'm good on the law. I've kept it from my youth. And then Jesus ups the ante a bit. He says, you like one thing. Go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. But that's just a bridge too far for the rich man. And, you know, it's interesting. When some compare Jesus with the God of the Old Testament, same God, by the way, but when they, they make a comparison, they, they, they think about, you know, the, the, the Old Testament God seems real intense and harsh and heavy on the law, and then Jesus seems more gracious and laid back. But what we see in the Gospels is that's not the case. For example, when it came to adultery, like, like what Moses wrote was that you shouldn't have committed adultery. Then Jesus upped it and said, actually, if you've committed lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. And then he thought, in, in regards to, to murder, you think, okay, I'm good on murder. But Jesus says, actually, if you've harbored anger against anyone, you've committed murder. So if Jesus came to save us, why is it so often in the Gospels, he seems to be highlighting our sin and, and to making our sin to seem uh, unconquerable? And even if we can do one thing, okay, I haven't murdered anybody. So, well, actually, if I've been harbored anger against anybody, I've broken that law. So, so why is he trying to make it seem hard, if not impossible, for us to be saved? And I think we get the answer in verse 26 and 27. It says, when the disciples say, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. That is why salvation is from God from start to finish. It's impossible without God. And part of what happens in a soul that God awakens to new life in Christ is their hearts are set free from what is seen, from what is before them to follow Jesus with all of their heart. And that is the start of what being a disciple is. It's turning from, the, from yourself, from your own world to Christ. Consider Luke chapter 14, verse, th verse 33, where Jesus says, any, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So being a disciple of Jesus involves renouncing all that you have. And simple logic would tell you the more you have, the harder it will be to follow Jesus. Because the more you have, the more you have something that's seen. And this stuff that's seen could be pretty awesome. And when the stuff that's seen and right in front of you is pretty great, it's hard to give yourself away to what is unseen. And, and isn't that the definition we get of faith in Hebrews 11? That faith is the conviction of things not seen? So then wouldn't it make sense if, if things that are seen, then it would make faith difficult? If what's right before you, if you're wealthy or life is just coming together and what is seen and is tangible before you is pretty awesome, wouldn't that make it difficult to live for what is unseen? And, you know, this is one of those things where sometimes we can look at this on, and on paper, we're like, yeah, yeah, we should live for the unseen world and, and, and wealth and things going great in this world can, can kind of be a distraction. And so, and so we think that, but, but, but do we get suspicious when things start to go well? And do we see our heart has a tendency to drift away? And, and more than that, 
Does this play out with our children? I mean, one thing that I often think about is I can believe things for me, but then do I believe them for, for them? And that's sometimes where I know if I really believe it for them, because I want my kids to obviously be happy, successful, and everything to go great. But am I equally concerned about them killing it, about just life just going great for them, about them being successful, maybe one day wealthy? Do I have a, a genuine concern of what that might do to their soul? And in, in raising them, am I trying to set them up to find hope and satisfaction in what can be seen and life working out and things going well and not being difficult and, in, and unknowingly praying for things that are going to undermine their faith in what is unseen? And look, of course, I'm not saying that we should be opposed to things going well in life. Those things are often good things. They're blessings from God and we should enjoy them. I'm just saying things going well, life going well, can put us under the spell of what is seen. And subtly, that will set our hearts away from what is unseen. And often our sense of validation, like I'm doing well, comes from things that are seen. You get paid more, you get a promotion, you get some type of validation. And what we see in the scripture is that's a trap, is that our validation comes from the gospel, and that's a thing unseen, so we can easily forget about the unseen and our loyalty can shift towards what is seen. I heard a story one time about a dad and his daughter was marrying a guy who was going to be a missionary. And I can't remember the details of the story, but he was going to go somewhere far away and dangerous. And, uh, and, and this dad had a friend ask him, you know, before the wedding, just like, hey, are you, you know, how are you doing with this? Are you kind of, it's been hard for you to know your daughter's going to go away you know, she'll be married to this guy that live far away. You, you won't see her hardly much at all. There'll be years in between seeing them, grandchildren and all that. Um, she's probably going to be not very wealthy, probably going to be poor, somewhat of a dangerous area. Her safety isn't as secure as it would be here. And you know what he said? The dad said, you know, it could be worse. She could be marrying a rich banker. <laughs> Before anybody takes too much offense to that, here's the point of what he's saying. And I think from the text, you, you get what he's saying is that there's a sense where her soul is safer being far away and dangerous, living as a missionary poor than rich, wealthy living in the suburbs. Because there's a thing when, when what is seen is great, the unseen gets lost and forgotten about. And, and would you be willing to say goodbye to your children, to be unsafe in a faraway place and unseen by you for quite some time, to, to say goodbye to the life you might have always imagined, grandchildren that you don't, they don't have the normal life that, that you've always imagined them having? And are you more concerned about your children finding success, doing really well in life, or are you, are you more concerned about them getting lost in that success, which would make it difficult for them to enter the kingdom of God because what is seen is so great? And look, I should be clear. I'm not going to try to undermine our kids so they'll never be happy and so they'll be happy in God, right? I mean, that's insane and ridiculous. And I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that what is seen, wealth and things like that, can subtly move our hearts away from what is unseen to what is seen. Um, there's a, a, a letter that Adoniram Judson 
uh, wrote to the the father uh, of the of the girl he wanted to marry, asking for her hand in marriage. And when he was asking to marry this man's daughter, he wasn't just asking to marry her; he was asking to marry her and take him with her to India where they would be subject to all kinds of struggles over there. And they were, if you've read the book on the biography, it was a tough go over there. And this is the letter that he wrote to his future wife's father. And he said, I've read this before years ago, but it's worth reading every couple of years, I think. So he wrote this. He said, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and suffering of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved, though her means from eternal woe and despair? So what would you have said to this? Most of us would have a hard time consenting to this. I know I would have a hard time. And, and look, it isn't just because we're not more disciplined or sacrificial. It's because we don't really believe that it's better to lose your life for Jesus and the gospel than it is to be wealthy. Or, or to try to carve out the good life according to whatever your vision of the good life might be. And, and, and to understand what Jesus is getting at, we need to see something that's going on inside of Jesus when he's having this interaction between the rich man. Because you need to understand he's not looking at this rich man with disgust. He, he's not trying to just show that he's selfish. Look at verse 21. In Mark 10, verse 21, look at how Jesus looks at him. In verse 21, it says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He was doing this out of love. He, he wasn't just trying to prove that the rich man was selfish and undisciplined. He, he wanted to wake him up out of the spell of what's seen. And we're all likely to get under this spell of what's seen. And Jesus saw it and he wanted to come out. And the problem was that he, wasn't, that he was rich. The problem was that he wasn't rich enough. Jesus wanted him to become even richer. But to become even richer, he had to walk away from it all. Because when it comes to sacrificing for Jesus and the gospel, no one gives more than they get. Now with that in mind, let's move to Peter and consider the interaction that Jesus had with him. So the, the rich man walks away from Jesus because he had too much to, to, to lose. Uh, this again is why Jesus said it's difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And, and at this point, Peter would like to make a contribution to the conversation. So he raises his hand and he says, hey, I've actually, we've actually left everything to follow you. <laughs> Peter kind of seems like a jerk here, right? So Jesus having this interaction with, with a rich man and he's unwilling to leave it all. Peter says, hey, just for the record, we've all left everything to follow you. How humble of Peter to point that out. 
But, but isn't it interesting how Jesus responds to this? He, he doesn't tell Peter, like, hey, man, you're kind of coming across like a jerk. You kind of sound arrogant right now. And, and he doesn't give him an attaboy. He doesn't say, hey, well, yeah, way to go. Good job. And he certainly doesn't apologize for the high cost of following him. What does he say? We'll see what he says in verse 29. To 29 to 31, I'll read it. He says, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So Jesus says that no one has left anything who will not receive back exponentially. He doesn't just say you'll, you'll, you'll get out of it what you put into it. He says it comes back 100-fold. And when it comes to sacrificing for our God, no one doesn't receive back 100 times whatever they might give up. No one gives more than they get. And we see this idea throughout the Scriptures. Just to name a few, in Proverbs 11, 24, and 25, we read this. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talking about giving. He says, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And then Paul describing Jesus. We see this pattern of, of, of Jesus giving himself away only to be exalted in that. He humbles himself only to be exalted. I want to read a portion of it in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And, and, and notice that the giving that Jesus does and the getting he gets at the end. Uh, in verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, so Jesus gave. Let's see what he gets. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is saying that while Jesus gave of himself emptied himself and humbled himself. On the other end of that, he was highly exalted with a name above every name. Every knee will bow and worship him. And, and this is the pattern how Paul summarized his life along with others who were being persecuted. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, Paul says this. He says, we don't lose heart. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are, are unseen are eternal. So Paul is saying that they will receive, and that what they will receive from their suffering is not even worth comparing with their, that what they are suffering, that the two aren't comparable. What they, will, what they will get is going to be way more intense than what they give. And, and look, and they, they might miss it if they're looking at what's seen, at what's transient, if they don't look at what's unseen. And what makes you get your eyes off of what is unseen is when things that are seen are pretty awesome. 
And so that's why we should count it pure joy when you face many trials. We don't know how much our hearts are knitted to this world. And when we start to lose stuff, it stings. But y'all, a lot of that stinging is good, something we need, because we are susceptible every day in sneaky ways to knit our hearts to this world and to what's seen and to lose sight of what is unseen. And this is why Jesus tells Peter that no one gives up anything without receiving back exponentially a hundredfold. And he gives this analogy of no one gives up mothers, brothers, and sisters, and families who doesn't gain a hundredfold, mothers, brothers, sisters, and all that stuff. And, you know, here's just a, a story of one of the ways I think this could play out. Uh, several years ago, uh, we were driving to Birmingham, and I ran out of gas. I think I've told multiple stories of running out of gas, and they're all different stories. I get the, there's a rich well of stories of running out of gas I can pull from. I don't know. Just fill it with a quarter tank left. I don't, I don't know why I don't do it. But anyway, ran out of gas in Birmingham. And it happened to pull over, and I was near a church. Providentially, there's a guy out there mowing the yard, uh, and he came over, uh, brought some gas, you know, refused payment, was super kind, was super gracious. And, and here's the thing. I, like, in, in this life, it, according to the world, I have one brother, and, and he's great. But according to the kingdom of God, I have innumerable brothers spread out everywhere. And should my car break down out of gas, which is likely to do, I'm probably going to have a brother nearby that was going to be there on the ready, happy that he was there to help. Whenever someone leaves something for Jesus and the kingdom, no matter how much they give up, no one gives more than they get. This is what the Proverbs teach. This is what Paul taught. And this is what Jesus teaches. No one gives more than they get. It's almost like the word sacrifice loses its meaning with this because it's more like a bargain. And that might be a, an odd word to use. I use the word bargain because a bargain is when, you, is when what you get is greater than what you give. David Livingstone, the, the missionary to Africa in the 1800s, put it this way. He says, people talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthy activity? Uh, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then, with the foregoing of the common conveniences of charities of life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us, I never made a sacrifice. According to Livingstone, he never made a sacrifice. He got more than he gave. And look, there's something we need to see in order to get this idea here. When Jesus gives you a command, when you're reading the scriptures, you see a command, an imperative, something you're supposed to do. How do you picture Jesus looking at you in that moment? How do you feel in that moment? Do you picture him looking at you, loving you? You know who takes Jesus serious and is willing to lay down their life for him? I'll tell you this, not the one who's disciplined, not the one who grew up in a religious family, but the one who believes deep in his bones Simply this, Jesus is looking at you and loving you. 
that, that there's not one thing he asks of us that isn't done out of love. And there's not one thing he asks of us that if we knew what he knew, we wouldn't rejoice in just being asked to do it, including to walk away from whatever it is we have. What might the Father do in return with what you give him? What might you be withholding from yourself and what you think you are withholding from God? It is in your own interest to offer all you have to Jesus and the gospel. And I'm quite sure it will sting in the short term. But there will be no regret in the long term. Because whatever might be lost, it's not worth comparing to what will be gained. And that is why many who are first will be last, and those who are last will be first. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we, we see this. We see that um, you are unseen. Your blessings are often unseen. And there are some things that are tangible. We can touch. We find validating. We find comfort in, security, significance, whatever it might be. And it puts us under a spell and it robs us of the joy of living our lives for you and for the gospel. So would you open our eyes? Would you wake us up from the spell? Would you help us to live for what is unseen and gladly walk away from all things that we might follow you? In Jesus, in your name that we pray. Amen.